If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In her new book, Fierce Appetites, The medieval historian Elizabeth Boyle takes a more unexpected look at life throughout the COVID lockdowns as she examines what medieval literature, particularly from Ireland, can tell us about the emotions and sentiments of people in the Middle Ages and how similar they may have been to our own. David Musgrove spoke to her to find out more. Uh, Today I am joined by Dr Elizabeth Boyle. Um, Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you for joining us. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. No problem. Right, so you've written this book, uh, Fierce Appetites, uh, and it's got a cover quote from uh, no less than Hilary Mantel, and she says it's like nothing else you will read. Uh, Who am I to argue with the woman who wrote Wolf Hall? It is indeed a fantastic read. And um, uh, I'm going to try and summarise what it is, and you can agree or disagree with me. It's kind of an autobiography and an account of your year living through uh, the pandemic, and it's all sort of framed in the context of the medieval experience of living and that's something you know all about because you're a medieval historian with particular expertise in in medieval literature uh in in old and middle irish um uh, particularly um so you've kind of find sources there that inform and reflect the experiences that you have lived through yourself and i suppose it's all kind of a, a bit of an effort to try to look at how similar or different we are today from people who lived a millennia or so ago is that kind of about a summation yeah, of what it is? I'd say that's about right. I mean, I think I'm sort of on the one hand asking how similar and how different are we from people in the Middle Ages? And, uh, you know, sort of on the one hand, looking at uh, universal emotions and experiences like grief or love or loss. Uh, but on the other hand, also, what are the differences that, that you know, separate our society from from the past? And I suppose the other thing the book is, is, is kind of an exercise in, in perspective, really. Like, you know, do we have a more objective perspective on things just because they happened a very long time ago? Is it possible to have an objective perspective on our own lives? Or do we fundamentally just bring ourselves to the study of the past, um, no matter what? Okay, good. Well, we'll explore some of those uh, subjects um, in in this discussion. Hopefully, just just a couple of things of nomenclature. When we talk about Middle Ages, it means lots of things to lots of different people. What what, what period are we actually referencing here? When in, in the way that you uh, understand the Middle Ages? 
So um, although I draw on some kind of old English and, and middle Welsh sources and so on, most of the focus of my book is Ireland. And so I use the designation, which is that the Middle Ages begin with St. Patrick in the probably early 5th century. Um, and uh, the early Middle Ages in Ireland end with the uh, Norman invasion of the mid-12th century. So that's roughly the period I'm, in, I'm inhabiting, the 5th century through to the, the mid-12th. Okay, so second half of the first millennium and, and, and a little bit. Um, so tell us a bit more about the sources that you, um, that you work with specifically and which you talk about quite a lot in the book, because they may be... Um, unfamiliar to some of our listeners, even though our, our listeners we know are historically literate and, and very knowledgeable about all, all matters historical, but but some of the sources might might be uh, a, a bit askance to people. So um, we talked about Old and Middle Irish, or at least I mentioned that in the, in the introduction. What do those terms mean? Okay, so Old Irish is the form of the Irish language that is attested from uh, around about the 6th century through to the end of the 9th century. Uh, and then around about the year 900, in the beginning of the 10th century, it transitions into Middle Irish, and Middle Irish takes us up to the end of the 12th century. Um, so quite a lot of the sources that I'm, I'm talking about are written in the vernacular in either Old or Middle Irish, um, and a lot of them are also written in Latin. So I'm dealing with sort of Latin sources as well. And one of the things I was trying to do is, is demonstrate the sheer variety of sources that are preserved from medieval Ireland. So I draw on law texts, grammatical texts, saga narratives, um, religious literature, devotional poetry, all sorts of things, um, just to, in itself, I think, to hopefully exemplify um, the rich variety of material that's being produced in, in literate environments in, in early medieval Ireland. And just um, just one more on the, on the language. So Old and Middle Irish, that's um, a sort of Celtic language that is different to uh, Welsh and Cornish and Breton. Is that right? Yeah, there's essentially two main families of, of Celtic languages. So there'd be Irish, Scottish, Gaelic and Manx on the one hand. They're quite closely related and Welsh, uh, Breton and Cornish on the other. Are these sources understudied, uh, under not well understood outside of academia or the academic circles that you look at, do you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and and to be honest, it, it's there's so much of it that quite a few significant sources have, have never even been published or translated into English or or anything. You know, there's a huge corpus of of legal texts. There's a huge corpus of religious writing. There's a huge corpus of medical literature. Some of which has just simply never been published. It's it's sort of all sitting there in manuscripts, um, kind of waiting to be discovered. And that's actually something that I tried to convey in the book a little bit. Was my own sense of excitement when I entered the field as a student, realizing that there was so much. To be done because there were so many sources that hadn't been been studied at all. I think you mentioned to me when we when we were chatting before that this the these sources are uh, comprised that the most prolific vernacular archive um, around. Is that right? It's the most prolific uh, and voluminous um, vernacular literature of any Western European medieval culture. Yeah. So that's that's, that's a pretty amazing statement when you when you say it like that, isn't it? And, and if people aren't aware of it, so what's what's going on is it is the language particularly difficult or are the sources themselves hard to come by it's actually more i think a case of just sheer numbers it's a small field medieval irish compared to the numbers of people who do old english for example by comparison or old norse and so there's 
just fewer of us working on this vast body of material, uh, trying to make it available to people to understand it, to interpret it, and to analyse it. Um, but yeah, Old Irish is also generally regarded as quite a difficult language grammatically. Um, it's quite different from the modern form of the Irish language. Um, but yeah, it's just we need more people working on it uh, to be able to bring the material to, to light. So what's the what's the context of these sources? You've mentioned there's various different sorts that you've been uh, that you've been ploughing through. How were they recorded? Where were they recorded? And by whom were they recorded? Uh, presumably, this is monastic institutions would be the, the the places where the actual written texts were, were were laid down. Yeah, absolutely. Ecclesiastical institutions that were responsible for providing education uh, and literacy in early medieval Ireland. Um, in some cases, we we can identify where certain manuscripts were produced, um, place, places like Clonmacnoise or Bangor or um, Glendaloch. And uh, these places, mona monastic is almost a little bit of a, a slightly misleading term because we know actually that not all of the scholars that worked in these ecclesiastical schools were necessarily in religious orders. They, they, some of them were simply employed as scholars, uh, but working within a, an ecclesiastical environment. So um, some of the, the scribes and writers would have been monks, um, but not all. Some of them would have been lay scholars working in ecclesiastical schools. But all of them composed within a Christian context. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, cr Christianization and the introduction of literacy in Ireland go hand in hand. They're in, they're inseparable. Okay, so that's that's interesting and important, isn't it? Because um, some of the sources tell some pretty strange sorts of tales, at least strange to us today. When we when you look at the more literary, poetic type of sources, aren't they? they there's some some quite unusual sorts of stories that are being told. Could you give us a, a sense of that of that strangeness for us, perhaps? Yeah, well, the saga narratives, perhaps in particular, are, are inhabiting this kind of story world that is set in a pre-Christian Ireland um, many centuries before the stories are actually being written. And that pre-Christian imagined literary world is uh, often can seem very strange to us from a modern perspective. Um, so to give a brief example, there's a there's a story that involves um, women in Ulster making these uh, piles of, of snow and the women uh, climb on top of the piles of snow and urinate on them uh, to try and see who can melt the most snow with their urine. And uh, the woman who melts the most of the snow uh, is a woman called Dervogil, uh, who's a daughter of a, a king of uh, Scandinavia. And the Irish women get very angry at this this foreign woman melting the snow with her urine, um, and they mutilate her um, savagely. Now that might seem completely extraordinarily bizarre, but and 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 just unfathomable. But once you start to get into the kind of medieval education and and worldview, you understand that actually this is a story about um, fertility. A woman's perceived fertility was linked to her bladder capacity. If you have a strong bladder, you're a fertile woman. So what these Ulster women are threatened by is the perceived fertility of this foreign woman who has come uh, to Ireland. And so just, you know, kind of knowing the thought processes behind something that initially seems utterly bizarre, what are they doing urinating on this snow? Uh, you can start to make sense of it by saying, oh, hang on, this is telling us something about medieval Irish ideas about physiology and female fertility. I mean, that is 
it's it's an amazing it, as you describe it and 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 make sense of it. Then it, it does make sense. But on on first glance, that sounds just like a, a crazy fantastical story, doesn't it? Is that is that one of the reasons why people haven't looked at these sources with perhaps the the same interest that they have uh, other sources of the same period because they kind of just feel a bit weird and a bit fictional. Yeah, I think perhaps um, the bizarreness of some of uh, the material on first reading uh, can be off-putting. And I think it can certainly lead people to not take them seriously as potential sources of of information about the medieval world. I mean, they can just seem like these utterly fantastical uh, creations. Um, and that can lead to a sort of cartoonish view of, of you know, medieval Irish sagas as this kind of slightly fantastical um, world, when in fact, actually, if you read them on their own terms and read them seriously as works of literature, they can be astonishing founts of, of knowledge um, about uh, the medieval Irish world. You've talked about... Uh, uh the Celtic literature kind of being infantilized and not seen as a as sort of serious literature, seen for a misty Celtic lens. Um, t- tell us, tell us a bit more about why you say that and what you mean by that. I think there's a perception that I've encountered anyway in my um, professional life and also in in popular kind of understanding that. Irish history only really begins when the Normans arrive, when the English invade. Then you get real serious historians doing real serious history. And before that, everything just seems sort of like some vague, mushy notion of Celticness with some Druids thrown in and, you know, uh, a bit of a Enya soundtrack. And it's, it's not taken seriously as history. And that's one of the things that I and, and other people now at the sort of cutting edge, I suppose, of our discipline are trying to say, no, this is a historical period where people are living in societies that are just as complex and sophisticated as any other uh, culture in any other historical period. Um, and we need to read these sources seriously and see what they can tell us about the medieval people who created them. Is is the very word Celtic problematic in that? It is. Uh, I don't find Celtic uh, useful as anything other than a linguistic designator. Um, it's the the term we use to identify a group of languages, um, but it has no historical or ethnic value as a as a label. And you've you've mentioned sagas a couple of times here. Um, some listeners might be pricking up their ears because uh, Viking sagas are, are are very well known, and 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 people study them and are interested in them and they kind of get translated into all sorts of interesting dramatic uh, dramatizations. Is is there a link between the sagas that you've been looking at and the Viking sagas? The use of the word saga um, is a deliberate uh, thing on my part. Uh, the, the tales, the stories that I'm talking about often get referred to as myths or mythology, as uh, as though they have some mythological function or mythological foundation, which I think is inaccurate. And I think the term saga, uh, which some of us in in the discipline of medieval Irish have borrowed from Scandinavian studies, is a better word that explains the kind of conscious literary creative process that lies behind these stories. And so I am, yes, stealing saga from uh, my colleagues in Scandinavian studies, but I think it much better exemplifies what these literary creations are because most of these tales don't in fact have any mythological component. They're, They're simply medieval literature set in a prehistoric past. 
And are, are these tales that the, the sagas, as you describe them, are they are they good reads? Some of them are absolutely brilliant. Some of them are remarkable and timeless insights into the full range of human psychology. Some of them I find really boring, and I don't know why people <laughs> enjoy reading them. I would say there is the full gamut of literary um, uh, experience and literary brilliance um, in in the corpus of literature that that survives. I mean, uh, Time Bukulanya, the the Cattle Raid of Cooley, is probably one of the best known medieval Irish sagas. To be honest, I find it a bit a bit repetitive and a bit I don't know I don't think it's great whereas on the other hand a story like uh, The Voyage of Maldoon or um, the the story of the Battle of Allen these are amazingly crafted beautifully constructed narratives that that have these astonishing scenes of of you know emotion human connection violence um, you know they're they're fantastic and very underrated and are they describing a connected world I think in the book uh, at one point you talk about some of these sources as as kind of building up something akin to the Marvel cinematic world where you've got lots of different stories linking in together the stories for example that that get put under the modern label the ultimate cycle. These are stories that feature characters such as Cuchulain and Maeve and uh, these kind of so-called heroes of, of Ulster. I very much compare them to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's a shared cast of characters and a kind of shared story world, but a different author can come along at a different time and write their own story using these characters. And that story might have a completely different theme from another story that a century later, another author could come along and create using the same cast of of characters. So I was thinking in terms of, you know, Black Panther is written by different people with a different message and a different theme than Guardians of the Galaxy, which again is written by different people uh, with different themes to um, Iron Man. And you can watch the Marvel films in timeline order, but that's not necessarily the order that they were create, created in. It's the order of the the narrative story world, yeah? And it's the same with the Ulster Cycle tales. You could read them in the order in which the sort of events seem to unfold, but that's not necessarily the order in which the stories were written or created. So I, I, I thought that the Marvel Cinematic Universe analogy was a sort of quite helpful one in a way. The, the, the world that um, these these sources are describing, it's, it's a world which is uh, composed and created in Ireland. Does it transfer across the Irish Sea? Does, does, do the same stories and sentiments hold true beyond Ireland, do you think? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the the stories that I've just been talking about in the Ulster cycle um, travel to to Scotland and um, circulate there, as do the stories about um, Finn McCool and his war band uh, circulate widely um, in in Scotland. Um, but also uh, some of the sort of longer narratives that get composed in Latin as opposed to the vernacular they have an extraordinary wide circulation. So something like the Navigatio Sancti Brendani, the Voyage of St. Brendan, that gets read all over the Latin-speaking medieval world and gets subsequently uh, translated into um, other vernacular languages of of Europe. So if if an Irish author is composing a story in Irish, it's sort of, in some ways, its audience is restricted to the Gaelic-speaking world. Um, And if they're writing in Latin, then you know, the sky's the limit and there are Irish Latin texts that just get circulated so widely across, uh, across Europe. 
Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I think it would be a completely different world. I think we are all human and I think people in Ulster in 800 were experiencing emotions like grief and laughter and happiness and despair and so on but they're operating within you know a completely different worldview. The really good thing about your book is the way you kind of pull in these sources to try and uh, understand and and contextualize uh, current emotions and feelings uh, and to try and get a sense about how they compare and contrast with what was going on uh, a millennia ago. So I just wanted to pick out some emotions and some senses and, and get, ask you to give us a sense about what you think uh, people were, were would have thought of these sorts of emotions um, uh, in, in, in the medieval period. So let's go with, with grief, um, which obviously is a topic which um, is closely linked to the pandemic and you know, a lot of people suffered those emotions. Absolutely. And um, I sort of do try to counter a little bit the idea that uh, medieval society was, was you know, somewhat numbed to death or, or less uh, uh, susceptible to feeling profound uh, grief. Uh, they certainly did grieve as much as uh, we do. Uh, so I pick out some of uh, the examples of, of literary expressions of grief. But one thing I do also try to be sort of cautious about is that our medieval sources are by nature public documents. You know, they're not people writing necessarily their private thoughts. We're not necessarily seeing directly into a person. Um, what we're seeing are these sort of public expressions of grief, communal expressions of, of grief written for a readership and for an audience. Um and so I take, so maybe a good example is the, the eighth century poet Blafuck, son of Kuvretan, who writes this great lament for Christ. Um, it's a, a grieving over the crucifixion. Um, but it's framed in a way as an address to Mary and an invitation for Mary to keen her son, to, to lament the loss of her son. And so, in the within this sort of very Christian framework and within this very sort of you know orth orthodox religious understanding of the crucifixion, we see this sort of human moment, which is the direct address to Mary and the recognition that she is a woman who's lost her son. You know, so um, it's sort of trying to navigate between the what might be a glimpse of real private emotions that that people feel and what is a, a sort of communal statement or a, a public statement. Okay, next next emotion, romantic love. Is that would that have been viewed in the same way uh, in oh, early medieval Ireland as, as no. today? <laughs> Not at all. It's so difficult to um, really reconstruct what the 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 feelings of of love uh, that are expressed in the the text sometimes seem so artificial and 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 feel alien to us. I mean. The, the uh, one common trope is the idea of uh, women falling in love with men that they've never met before, purely on the basis of something that they've heard about them, usually their martial prowess or whatever, um, which feels like a celebration of male martial prowess, but doesn't really tell us something about romantic love. Um, there's a lot of rape in medieval Irish literature and, you know, non-consensual sex, which again doesn't tell us anything at all about uh, romantic love. I think the closest thing that I managed to, to find in exploring that emotion 
was the story of these these two poets, Leodhan and Kuratha, um, and she, Leodhan, uh, sort of is faced with a choice between whether to to marry Kuratha or whether to devote her life to to God and uh, to become a nun. And it's a very beautiful set of poems where they do seem to be struggling with lust for each other and you know potentially love for each other but ultimately she chooses god and chooses the religious life and kurada is sent packing so um yeah it's 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 different from our ideas of romantic love um but there clearly are people sort of grappling with uh these kinds of emotions um in in a slightly different way perhaps than we would regard them today You've just given a, a couple of examples of sort of clear misogyny in in, in the sources. Do, do we hear women's voices in these sources at all? We do. Um, so to give you some stats, uh, having sort of counted up all of the named poets uh, from Ireland in the period that we're talking about, uh, of, of the names that we have of poets, whether they're real or fictional, uh, 97% of them are men and 3% are female. So that's the kind of balance that we're looking at. There were educated women. Uh, I have one or two instances of poems I discuss in the, the text that are probably the closest things that we have that we can be sure were probably written by women. Um, but on the whole, you know, the female voice is mediated through a male one. And although we get some very touching portraits of female characters in some of the, the stories that I write about, they're, they're stories that are almost certainly written by by men. So it's a, it's a female voice that's mediated through a male voice. So is, is the society that the, the context of the society that these sources are in, it's a patriarchal one, presumably. Oh, it's a deeply, deeply patriarchal society. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in, even in it's enshrined in the laws. Um, so in early medieval Ireland, a woman was legally worth literally half of what a man of the same status was worth. And, and moving on to it, isn't this isn't another emotion? This is a I've written this down. It's not. It doesn't quite fit into my my categories. But family ties um, and and how people understood families, because you've got a really interesting line on on nuclear families and that. Yeah, I mean, I think families are extraordinarily messy or at least mine certainly is and uh looking back in the past i you know just think well the average medieval irish household um would have been made up of all sorts of people not necessarily of biological relationship and so um on the one hand you know kind of high status uh residences would have comprised you know let's say a, a royal residence you've got a, a a king who may well ditch one wife and go and marry another one um if, if political alliances formed by the first marriage are no longer you know beneficial to him so he'll go off and maybe divorce marry another woman uh so there's the potential for there being sort of stepchildren in in the picture um they in a high status house they would have had enslaved people providing domestic labor and uh, working the land. Um, so again, people were within the household, but not of biological relationship. And um, perhaps most significantly for early medieval Ireland, there's this institution called fosterage, where um, children would be sent out and fostered to families of equivalent social status for training, kind of almost like a live-in apprenticeship type thing. And so, yeah, in this sort of hypothetical house, you might have 
children, stepchildren, stepparents, children who are in fosterage, so foster siblings and um, enslaved people and servants providing uh, domestic labour, all living together within a household, uh, which to me is probably much more uh, reflective of, of historical realities than the kind of mum, dad, two kids, nuclear family that is sometimes depicted as the ideal today. Yeah. Okay. So a lot more, a lot more inter interpersonal connections by the sound of things. Okay. What about this one? Anxiety. Anxiety feels like quite a, a modern concern, doesn't it? When you say it, people people suffer from anxiety today because of the all, all the all the pressures of the world. Did people suffer from anxiety in early medieval Ireland? I would be very very reluctant to attempt to retrospectively diagnose people. That's a very very um, thorny and unwise thing to do, I think. All I can say is that there are plenty of sources that involve people expressing mental disquiet, um, uh, mental disturbances, um, things that certainly from our modern perspective look, for example, like depression. Um, but of course, they're not described in the in the same uh, uh, same frame or, that we would use um you know we're thinking about brain chemistry and, and neuroscience of, and what have you whereas in the medieval sources it tends to be people being sort of maybe beset by demons something from the outside that that um you know is that besets somebody and then causes them to be unable to sleep or un, uh, you know to cause them to lose their appetite and uh, to withdraw and so as I say, I am not going to attempt to retrospectively diagnose any of that. But all I can say is that, yeah, there in the sources, there are people expressing mental disquiet in some way that resonates with the kind of things that we think about today in terms of anxiety and depression. Okay. Uh, and last one, shame. Did people feel shame in your period? People were almost <laughs> coerced into feeling shame. Um the area of in the book where I where I talk most about shame, I think, is actually in respect to uh, legal sources from medieval Ireland and Wales, where laws are are created in order to shame people into acting appropriately. So, um, for example, uh, uh, in early Irish law, if a woman um, claimed to be menstruating and her husband didn't believe her and thought that she was lying about it in order to avoid providing him with sexual satisfaction, uh, then it could go to legal arbitration and, a, and a, a woman a witness could be brought in to examine the woman and check that she was indeed menstruating. And if she wasn't, she would be forced to pay a fine to her husband. And, you know, I don't think there were people going around on a weekly basis checking whether women were actually menstruating or not, but rather the existence of that legal provision acts as a kind of shaming function to shame a woman into having sex because the alternative is that someone could come and check that you were actually menstruating and force you to have sex with your husband um, if you weren't. Uh, so I think, yeah, the, the kind of use of shame as a method of sort of social control is very much there in the in the kind of legal texts and penitential texts that I that I look at in the book. Brilliant. Well, it's, it's a really fascinating uh, way to kind of try and understand the, the medieval mindset, I suppose. But I suppose I wonder, uh, 
if I gave you a time machine and dropped you back into Ulster in 800 AD, would you, I mean, obviously you'd have an advantage, you'd speak the lingo, so that's a start, but um, <laughs> <It'd help. laughs> would, you, would, you, would you feel at home? Would, you, would, would, would the people feel totally alien in the way they, they viewed the world or do you think you would be quickly sort of making a connection with them? I think it would be completely alien. I think the kind of level of, of patriarchal um, sort of s- structures within the society, you know, the idea that I'm a female academic, you know, if I was to be dropped into into Ulster in the year 800, I'd be lucky to, you know, spend my life um, grinding, you know, corn and wheat to make make flour or whatever, you know, it's, it's yeah, uh, I think it would be a completely different world. I think we are all human. And I think people in Ulster in 800 were experiencing emotions like grief and laughter and happiness and despair and so on. But they're operating within, you know, a completely different worldview that is so framed by Christian morality and the desire to sort of even legislate a nuclear family into existence, you know, in the face of human uh, unwillingness to to conform to that necessarily. Um, so I think it would be a very, very different place and a very difficult place for me as a modern atheist academic, you know, to, to even attempt to inhabit. But I suppose at least I'd be able to say that using the correct infix pronouns. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. To, to finish up, um, uh, you, your book is is amazing. I, I honestly haven't enjoyed a book uh, more for ages. It's, it's a really, really brilliant way to take us into, into the medieval mindset, as I've just been talking about. But it is a very different way of writing. It's a very, if it is a history book, it's a very, it's a very personal one. I don't know if you'd describe it as a, as a history book or, or something else. But I wonder if you've got any observations on on the way that we write history, the way that history should be written and, and who we're writing it for. Yeah, I think there are people who write brilliant history books and there will always be people who will go out and buy those brilliant history books and read them and love them. And I wanted to do something slightly different in that I wanted to write a book about medieval Ireland and medieval Britain but for someone who wouldn't necessarily buy a history book, for someone who wouldn't necessarily think, oh yes, I really want to read about medieval history. So I tried to use the memoir form, use the kind of autobiographical frame as a way to hook people in who might not necessarily realise that actually medieval Ireland and Britain are incredibly interesting and there's all this amazing stuff. And so, yeah, I was trying to do something slightly different. Um, I hope, you know, history history fans and, and big sort of history geeks would, will find plenty to enjoy in the book. But like I say, my target audience was, for, was someone who wouldn't necessarily think that they would want to pick up a history book, but would pick up a memoir. And uh, I hope that by, you know, uh, writing the book in this way, that I might sort of capture a whole new group of people who discover that actually medieval history is really interesting and they might then go on to buy more traditionally framed history books. Well, you're probably preaching to the converted here with this audience, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, brilliant. Okay, well, um, uh, Elizabeth Elizabeth Boyle, uh, first Fierce Appetites is on sale now. Uh, a fascinating read. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. That was Elizabeth Boyle, Fierce Appetites, 
loving, losing and living to excess in my present and in the writings of the past is out now published by Sandy Cove. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. (laughs) 